Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Robert M. Delahunty, a fellow at the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life, 17-year service in the United States Department of Justice, and co-author, along with John Yu, of the new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court, and Robert Delahunty, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. It's a fascinating book, and really we should know more about the United States Supreme Court. So I'd like to start here, the origins of the concept. Where did they come up with this idea for the Supreme Court and the system of courts in the United States of America? Well, basically, our judicial system traces back to the English model and to our own experience as colonies and then as states uh, before the Constitution of 1787. So there were models in those earlier systems in the states, for example, there were Supreme Courts. And in some states, like Rhode Island, uh, it was controversial, but they had judicial review, which is the institution or the practice that gives our own Supreme Court, the most influence and power that it has. The uh, book starts out a little quote from Alexander Hamilton talking about the least dangerous branch. What did he mean like that? And that really come to pass? Well, Hamilton thought that of the three branches of the federal government, the president, the Congress, and the judiciary, the judiciary would be the weakest because all it could do was to persuade. It could give its opinion about the law in the cases before it. That itself was a limitation because if there were no cases, it couldn't deliver an opinion. And then it would really have to rely on the executive branch of the government to be its enforcement arm. So he thought that that rendered judges less powerful uh, than the other branches. There was another strand, too, in his thinking. And this one, I think, is very relevant right now. The Constitution makes judges independent. This country has a long and glorious tradition of judicial independence. They are supposed to be sheltered from political influences. But what that means is that politicians can use their platforms to denounce and attack the Supreme Court and the justices really cannot reply on their own. So that's a vulnerability that the judicial system has. You know, what that means is its independence has to be protected and safeguarded by the rest of us to lead to the court's defense when it's appropriate to do so. And that's true right now when the court has been the target of our presidents and his party's denunciations, which are largely false or misinformed. You mentioned the the least powerful branch, at least that's how it was perceived to be. Was that deemed to be a desirable situation? In other words, were they looking at that and saying, well, that's very good? Yeah, I think they believed it was necessary and unavoidable 
because the judges uh, were supposed to exercise powers of understanding, powers of intellect, powers of judgment, but not to have force at their command. And if you don't have force at your command, your judgments um, may have no effect. I mean, again, we might be seeing this now with the widespread massive resistance to the Supreme Court's decision about higher education. The judges cannot enforce that on their own. They depend on private litigation and they depend on the assistance of state and federal governments to have their orders carry into effect. I want to talk about how things worked out in the early years, the early history of the Supreme Court in the early years of our country. Uh, how did it go? Uh, this was obviously putting something into practice which hadn't been tried before in this way. Chief Justice John Marshall uh, was the one who uh, really left his signature on the Supreme Court. But he was only the third chief justice. There were two before him who were highly distinguished in their own right, but not particularly so as chief justices. John Marshall blazed a new trail with his decision in Marbury v. Madison, which is probably the most important Supreme Court decision ever in 1803. And in that decision, uh, the court established that it had the right of judicial review, which is to say it could, if there was a case or a controversy that involved a challenge to an act of Congress uh, and it got to the Supreme Court, then the court could hold that the act of Congress was contrary to the Constitution and strike it down, hold it to be no law. Now, that was a very important power to claim, and I think uh, Marshall's claim was right. There's nothing specific in the text of the Constitution that grants the power of judicial review, but in the Federalist Papers, which were written at the time to explain the new Constitution or the proposed Constitution to the voters, Alexander Hamilton, again, made it clear that this power of judicial review would lie in the Supreme Court. And so some years later, in 1803, uh, John Marshall laid down this decision, which claimed that power, and that has been accepted ever since. It's based not on the text of the Constitution, but on the kind of activities that the Constitution contemplates for the Supreme Court. So we hear the term quite often, the Supreme Court is the law of the land. Lincoln had concerns and comments about judicial supremacy. Let's talk about that concept itself. When that term came into use, the law of the land. Well, it's a very old term going back into medieval English history. Look, there are two, there are two different things here, though, judicial supremacy and judicial review. The Supreme Court is the equal of the other branches, but it's not their superior. Its interpretations of the Constitution are, in a sense, the law of the land. I mean, they are the best guide to the meaning of the Constitution, but the Supreme Court's constitutional rulings are not the Constitution itself. They can be wrong. And if they are wrong, then the other branches and the people should push back against the court. And they usually do. And the court should reconsider. And if appropriate, it should reverse itself. So I would distinguish between the Constitution and the Supreme Court's constitutional interpretation. There is some mileage between those two things. It is at least uh, on the face of it, the best guide to the meaning of the Constitution and for reasons of public order, the other parts of the federal government and the state should fall in line with it. 
Um, but they reserve the right to question it and challenge it and try to persuade the court um, to overturn its rulings. And if a president disagrees with the Supreme Court's interpretation, as some have done, then the president has he has things in his toolbox, instruments in his toolbox that he can use. I mean, for example, the Supreme Court under Marshall had held that Congress had the power to charter a Bank of the United States um, that had been debated in Washington's cabinet and in the early Congresses. It had been enacted into law several times to have a bank. The Supreme Court had upheld the constitutionality of the bank. Well, in the 1820s, President Andrew Jackson said, I don't agree, and he vetoed the renewal of the bank's charter. He could do that. He had an ind- a right to an independent view of the Constitution different from the Supreme Court's, and he could use his veto power to express that. That being said, generally speaking, in this country, and certainly since the civil rights era, we expect compliance with the Supreme Court's decisions. We, you know, it's only for reasons of prudence. In an orderly system of government, if you disagree with the Supreme Court, you do so in a lawful way. Uh, And you don't, for example, just try to nullify the Supreme Court's decisions as now seems to be happening in some places. You mentioned the toolbox of the president and what we've seen in in recent years and maybe going back a little while is this massive expansion of executive power. So how has this changed the balance of power between the three branches of government and in particular the Supreme Court versus the executive branch? By and large, over the past, let's say, 80 to 90 years, the Supreme Court has acquiesced in the expansion of executive power uh, because Congress, and I'm afraid uh, Congress has not always been responsible in this, has vested or delegated uh, enormous amounts of its own powers to the executive and to the federal bureaucracy. And the court has allowed the two political branches to make those bargains. Uh, And the result has been that the executive has accrued a great deal of power that properly should be exercised by Congress itself, or at least delegated only with many more restrictions and limitations. In the past three years or so, the Supreme Court has now pushed back against that. It did that, for example, um, last week in the student loan case. Mm -hmm. And it said, before we accept that, Congress has, in fact, given the executive these unstructured and expansive powers. We want Congress to speak clearly to that matter. I think in the end, um, the court will continue this pushback and Congress will take on more and more responsibilities. After all, it is supposed to be a deliberative body where the great issues of domestic policy in this country are worked out and compromised and negotiated. And then a resolution is reached that has a broad-based consensus. That's the way our system is supposed to work. There must have been some tussles between the states and the concept of federalism versus the Supreme Court, particularly in the early days, not that those have been exhausted. But how did they find a balance between the powers of the states as conceived in the Constitution, federalism, and the Supreme Court's ability to kind of set the law of the land as we talked about earlier? Well, that is a really interesting question. And of course, there is a long, long history of claims, some good, some not so good, of states' rights. I mean, going back to Andrew Jackson, whom we mentioned just a little while ago, um, the state of South Carolina in 1832, if I remember, decided it would simply not obey the federal tariff law. 
this was called nullification. And Andrew Jackson made it clear that he was president of a union and the rules, the tariff rules would apply to every state in the union. And he would put South Carolina's resistance down by force if he had to. Uh, We haven't had that kind of crisis in recent decades, but the last time we had something on a large scale like that, of course, was in the civil rights era in the 1950s and 60s, when in parts of the South there was massive resistance to the enforcement of the Supreme Court's orders and the lower court's orders, desegregating the public schools. I mean, I personally am old enough to remember um, people like Orville Faubus or Lester Maddox or George Wallace uh, resisting Supreme Court orders and claiming that states' rights was their defense for not integrating their public schools. In the end, uh, there was a degree of force in ensuring their compliance. President Eisenhower sent federal troops into Little Rock to ensure that the schools were desegregated. But in the end, I think it was moral suasion as well as uh, force that persuaded the uh, resisting governments to come around and accept the court's decisions. Uh, The court does rely very much on moral suasion on its position as neutral and unpolitical and independent. And that is why it has historically enjoyed so much respect and deference from the American people. Robert Delahunty, I want to bring forth to you a modern day example that hasn't happened yet, but I see it coming. And this has to do with the border. And we've heard some grumblings from candidates who were not elected, but who had run for governor in some of the border states that they would disregard a federal rule and take the border into their own hands because the federal government wasn't doing that. And so do you see a clash coming in that area with the courts? Because it's certainly been talked about. You know, that is another very interesting question. I think that the time uh, when the states were most likely to do that has passed, and they properly have taken two lawful courses. I mean, one, they use political pressure, and, you know, maybe elections will turn on immigration, and then two, they use litigation. And, you know, just within the past um, four weeks or so, the Supreme Court has actually rejected a challenge by the state of Texas to the Biden administration's border control policies. Some questions can't be resolved by law, by appeal to the Constitution. They have to be resolved politically. So if you disagree with uh, the immigration policy of this administration, and I certainly do, your recourse is basically political, not legal. Uh, There are things states can do to push back, but under our constitution, uh, immigration policy, it's like foreign policy. It's committed to the federal government. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with Robert M. Delahunty in just a moment. Associated Press award-winning journalist, Rob Schilling. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and, in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, 
but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at Borderhawknews on Twitter. Unleashed. The book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Co-author Robert M. Delahunty joins us, and we're into the Supreme Court and the history of the Supreme Court. I'd like to go now to something else that happened recently, the court and COVID. We had unprecedented issues that came up during the COVID lockdowns, and the courts had to deal with some of this, including probably the vaccinations and other health issues, masks and so forth. So how did the court do with the COVID challenge? There are sort of two strains in judicial thinking about matters like that, and they go in opposite directions. On on the one hand, the courts tend to accept the views of certainly the executive and Congress, but even of the states, uh, if they find that there's a public health emergency. The courts don't want to stand in the way of the government taking the measures that the government considers to be necessary. So that counsels Um, extreme deference to the emergency actions of any government, state or federal. But the other strain is that the courts dislike declarations of emergency because they tend to mean that ordinary law is suspended and that constitutional rights are suspended. So you had states ordering the closing of churches, for example, so that people could not practice their faith which they have, of course, a right to do under the First Amendment. Uh, And sometimes the states would uh, shut down the churches but leave, let's say, gambling casinos or abortion clinics open. And the courts worried about that because there seemed to be some kind of invidious view of religion in, in discrimination like that. So the two strands of thinking about emergencies, one, let the governments do what they think best, but two, Let's not let them get away with murder because they declare emergency. They're at odds. And more and more, of course, as the COVID emergency has waned, and indeed the Biden administration has said it is over, um, the courts have become much more critical of government actions. This term, Justice Gorsuch, and he might well be my favorite Supreme Court justice right now, he wrote a very eloquent opinion saying, you know, we cannot have government by by emergency decree forever. Um, This results in the suppression of basic constitutional liberties, and he thinks that may have happened. On the left, people used to say that about President George W. Bush, that he was using states of emergency uh, in wartime to suppress civil liberties. They used to say that. I don't think they were fair to Bush, but that's another issue. They used to say that about Donald Trump, who tried to build a wall on the basis of a state of emergency. So, you know, we have to, sometimes there are emergencies, there's no question, but we have to be, and the courts in fact are, pretty vigilant over suspension of ordinary rules because of declared emergencies. I'd like to talk about Brown v. Board of Education, Kelo versus New London. Maybe we could talk a little bit about those two. Sure. Well, 
Uh, Brown v. Board, of course, is the great Supreme Court case of the 20th century, 1954, that struck down the basis of Jim Crow, uh, the basis of racial segregation under law. There was an earlier case from 1896 called Plessy versus Ferguson, yes. which had sustained and upheld racial segregation under law. And that case had been on the books for a long time. And frankly, a whole social system in, in the South was built around racial segregation, beginning um, certainly in the 1940s. But in the end, by 1954, the Supreme Court held that that social system had to be dissolved, that white supremacy was not a basis constitutionally for legal decisions, for laws and statutes and ordinances and so forth. All of that had to be disassembled. Uh, it was a monumental decision. It took quite a long time to be implemented. Fortunately, Congress took the next step with the Civil Rights Act in 1964. What we saw this week in the Harvard case, where a group of Asian American students brought suit against Harvard and the University of North Carolina, what we saw in the court's decision there was an affirmation of the principle that race has no place in our legal system. The Constitution requires the government and federally funded institutions to act in a race-neutral, colorblind way. That is just carrying Brown v. Board a stage further. It's interesting, though, that people seem to want to have it both ways. So while they were applauding Brown v. Board of Education, uh, maybe some of the same people are condemning the most recent educational decisions. And, and this goes back to the Bakke decision, which, again, people really had trouble with at the time, and I think rightfully so. But why do these things take so long? Is the court hesitant to revisit sometimes bad decisions within a generation? The Bakke case was decided 45 years ago, and it all hinged on the opinion of one of the nine justices. And essentially, it said that higher education could practice a limited degree of racial discrimination in admissions. So if you were an applicant to Harvard uh, or North Carolina and you were from a minority group, they could give you a little plus for that, just as they might give you a little plus because you played hockey or the saxophone or something like that. And now the universities took that and ran with it. And you can tell from their reaction that race became not just a small plus factor in an applicant's file, but actually a very significant factor in admissions to the detriment of Asian Americans, notably, and also whites. It had reached the point where uh, it really was a critical factor uh, in whether you were going to be admitted to um, university of your choice. And the court correctly ruled that, no, that that is racial discrimination. And by the way, it also said, we're tired of trusting college administrators and college faculties. They have been telling us for 45 years, certainly for the last 20 years, they have been saying, trust us. We know what we're doing. Racial preferences make for better quality of education. Last week, the court said, we no longer trust you, educators, administrators, faculty. We no longer trust you. You cannot prove to us in any way after 45 years of this experiment, after 20 years when we gave you a license to continue this kind of program. You cannot show us by any reasonable metric how the quality of education has improved because of this. We're going to use common sense 
in the absence of proof of educational benefits, we're going to hold your programs that involve racial preferences to be illegal and unconstitutional. It's a victory for common sense, frankly. There was another decision within the past year or so, the Dobbs decision that again overturned a Supreme Court precedent that many took issue with Roe versus Wade. Again, it took such a long time and I frankly was surprised. I never thought I'd see this happen in my lifetime. Were you surprised by Dobbs? I was actually, uh, I was, I welcomed it and I applauded it. Here's something that people don't understand as well as they ought to. Quite often the Supreme Court is not deciding on the constitutional constitutionality or unconstitutionality of a particular program or policy. It is certainly not saying this kind of program or policy is wise or unwise, moral or immoral. It doesn't hold in Dobbs that abortion is good or bad policy, moral or immoral. It prescinds from making that judgment. What it does is this. It doesn't decide on a policy. It decides on who decides. It's kind of a second-order decision. And in Dobbs, it said the correct decision-maker on abortion policy is not us. We have no special credentials, qualifications, or wisdom on abortion policy. It's not us. We're not the decision-maker. The correct decision-maker for abortion policy is the people, the people of the states. They make the call. It's not for us to say, shall there be a right to an abortion or not? It is for the people of the states to say, and they will come up in a country of 50 states and 340 million people with different answers. As we look back on the history of the court, could you come up with perhaps the most unqualified appointment in court history and why? Is there someone that really stands out to you? No, there have been plenty of mediocre appointments in my lifetime, and there have been some people... I would like not to have seen on the court, although they were very good legal minds like Justice William Brennan, but in my lifetime, and I'm 76, I think the appointments have all been acceptable intellectually and morally. Nobody stands out in that in the last three quarters of a century as being patently unqualified or unfit for office. In fact, the present court and I don't agree with all of the, their, the justices' opinions, but I think they're very hardworking, smart, credentialed people of fine moral character. And I think the attacks on the ethics of some of the justices are totally off the wall. On the other side of that, what's the worst missed opportunity? Many people are still talking about Robert Bork. Do you see him as a, a worst missed opportunity? Would he have been an excellent jurist? Oh, superb. Listen, I was on the Bork team in the Department of Justice, I was working for the government at that time, and the White House put together a group of lawyers in the Department of Justice to help the nominee get through. And Robert Bork was uh, one of the most qualified nominees ever. I mean, he had held very high government positions in the Solicitor General's office. He had been a professor at Yale Law School. He was an ex-Marine. Uh, he was a very influential scholar. He had absolutely sparkling credentials, and he was brought down by the likes of Senator Ted Kennedy and Senator Joe Biden and people who were uh, much less fit for public office than he was. It was a great loss that Robert Bork was not confirmed. What did they fear about Robert Bork? Well, he was smart. Uh, He was eloquent. Uh, He knew the law extremely well. 
you know, he would have prevented some bad decisions um, that were made under Justice Kennedy, who actually got the seat that Reagan had originally um, intended for Bork. Uh, and they knew that. They knew that he would um, rule in those ways, and they slandered him. It was completely shameless. I, a personal note, I remember we worked pretty hard, the Bork team. And um, I remember going home at about 2 a.m., leaving the Department of Justice, and suddenly I just slapped my forehead. We're going to lose. How is this possible with this wonderfully qualified nominee? But he was smeared and slandered and they got their way with him. You complete the book by talking about restoring the original design of the Constitution. Would you talk a little bit about what that would take and why that's important? Well, because the rule of law is important and the Constitution, you know, and the amendments to it were debated and then proposed to the states and to the voters, and the people ratified them, and they became the law. And unless they're changed through the same kind of procedure, those uh, rules, those structures, remain the law. Um, They embody the considered consensus of the American people as to the structure of their government. And nobody has the right to change them except by going through the procedures by which they were enacted. Broadly, that is the doctrine known as originalism, uh, and the present Supreme Court is consists mostly of justices who believe in originalism in some form or other, and that means just that they will enforce the law as originally understood and promulgated. I, I honestly don't know how people can object to that, frankly. I'm with you. Robert, tell us if people would like to follow you online, the work that you do, if they'd like to get a copy of the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. How can we do that? Well, it came out just about a week ago. Uh, It's published by Regnery. You can buy it directly online from Regnery. You can go also to Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other online book dealers. You can go to your local bookshop and have them ordered for you, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. It's part of a series of politically incorrect guides. They cover a multitude of topics, but ours is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. You've done a supreme job in writing about the Supreme Court, and I'm so grateful that you took the time with us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Robert, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.